We're in the middle, if you're just visiting with us this week, we're in the middle of a series called Beginning with Christ. It's built out of a new Anglican catechism that came out a few years ago, and it's looking at the root and central, deep, basic truths of Christianity. What has God done for us in Jesus Christ? What is the gospel? And really, the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, and this week and next, we're looking at, okay, so how do we respond to the gospel? And this week brings us to repentance, to repentance. Jesus, Jesus' very first sermons were repent and believe, repent and believe in the gospel. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stands in front of the entire crowds of people in Jerusalem, and he says, repent and be baptized. There is no belief without repentance. There is no baptism, as we're going to do later, without repentance. You cannot have one without the other. So very simply breaking apart what we're going to look at today is why we need repentance, what repentance looks like, and what enables or empowers us to repent rightly. And we're looking at Jesus' parable in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, which is a master narrative of the gospel. It reveals what God has done in Jesus Christ for us and is particularly helpful in understanding how we respond in repentance. So we read, starting in verse 12, the younger of the two sons says to the father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between the sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So if we're to see why we need repentance, the first thing is to look at the state that we're in as human beings. And we see this described in the parable as the actions of the son being metaphors, spiritual metaphors for what we do. What he does is what we do in a daily life. But what does he do? The first thing he does is he offends his father by saying, give me my share of the property. If you've heard a sermon on the prodigal son, you know this, that basically what he was saying is, dad, I wish you were dead. When you die, I'm gonna get a share of the property, so let's pretend like that day is today. Give me my share now, my inheritance today. Now, a Middle Easterner who had heard this story would have expected one response from the father. The father, having heard the son say this, should have beaten his son, driven him from the house, and told him to never come back again. But this father is not like any other Middle Eastern patriarch. He says, okay, and he divides his property, the land, the cattle, the sheep. Then the son's second offense is that he gathers all he has. It says he gathered all he had. Now, in that day and age, you did not have cash. You had property. And the property had been in your family for centuries, if not thousands of years. So when the father says he divides the property, it means from the creek over to the mountain is yours. And this head of cattle is yours. But for the father, that property was his life. That land represented his time with his own family. His clan had had that property for centuries. He had walked those creeks with his brothers and his father and his grandfather. And the son sells it off. He sells it off just like that. Property that had been in the family for centuries, he just sells it off and turns it into liquid, into cash. 
Liquidating the property is a shocking breach of family ties. And it's an affront to the very life, the soul of the father. And the last thing he does is he takes a journey. He leaves. He physically leaves the community that he had grown up in, that you were expected to live in your whole life. He breaks ties with his nation, and therefore his religion, his faith in Yahweh. He breaks ties with his community and village, his family, and of course with his father. And this is where we see the fundamental need for repentance. Because Jesus is saying, look, all of you, all of us, like that prodigal son, have turned from the father. Every one of us has sinned against the father. David, famously, when he was king of Israel, sins by committing adultery with Bathsheba. He has sex with somebody who is not his wife. Not only does he do that, he commits adultery, but he has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. So David sins against Bathsheba. He sins against Uriah, the husband, and essentially he sins against the nation by abusing his role and power as king. But when he is confessing his sin in Psalm 51, what does David say? David says, against you and you only have I sinned. He's talking to God and done what is evil in your sight. And our natural response is, well, what about Bathsheba and how about Uriah, the guy you killed? David rightly sees in his confession that all sin is fundamentally and from its starting place a sin against God. Yes, he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, but he would not have done that if he had not disregarded God in the first place. If he had not turned from God and said, I'm going to go my own way. The fundamental starting place of sin and therefore of confession is to God. And every sin or offense, no matter how small, is always against God first. And so the state of all humanity is summed up in what Paul says in Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. Now hold on just a second, because at this point in Romans 3, Paul is talking to Jewish people. And in that day and age, Jewish people were incredibly religious, incredibly moral. They were, by our standards, very, very good people. And how does Paul describe them and himself? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks God. Wait a minute. These Jewish religious people don't seek God. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we all stand. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And it's why we all need to repent. In our question and answer catechism, it gives it to us this way. How should we respond to the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus? I should repent of my sins and put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. What does it mean for you to repent? To repent means that I have a change of heart, turning from sinfully serving myself to serving God, and I need God's help to make this change. Repentance is a change of heart. It's turning from self to God. And then, as it says here, we're not able to do this on our own. 
Now that's a very un-American phrase. Of course we're able to do it on our own. You can become whatever you want. If you are out of shape, work hard and you can get back in shape. You can start from a very low place in this society and you can become president of the United States. What do you mean I can't help myself? I can't change myself. I can't do repentance on my own. But Christianity says you can't. You need repentance, but you cannot do it on your own. And I actually think this is the number one barrier to gospel Christianity. Many, in fact, the majority of Americans say, I'm a Christian. But this idea of, I need to repent and I cannot do it on my own, I think is a fundamental barrier to gospel faith. We may think we've repented, but we probably don't go far enough because we don't realize how far down we've fallen. We read the rest of what happens to the son in verses 14 to 16. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So as a result of his turning from his father, rejecting his father and going his own way, he is now penniless, starving, in shame and guilt, and essentially enslaved. It says he hires himself out to this man, but he has no food to eat and no one gives him anything. Basically, he probably had indebted himself so much that he had to become an indentured servant, a slave. So he is penniless, starving, and enslaved. And Jesus is saying, this is where sin leads you. This is what sinfulness looks like spiritually. And I think the hard part about this descriptor of sinfulness is it doesn't always feel that way. Our sinful state or our sinfulness doesn't always feel like or look like penniless, starving enslavement. It's more obvious in something like addiction. When you, you, in which people in this room have dealt with addiction by directly or in their family and their friendship, all of us have. And you see that spiral of addiction, you know what it looks like until you are in a place of enslavement and starvation. But how about the rest of you, the rest of us? We don't look penniless and starving. Somebody who's incredibly wealthy doing very well and successful, are they really enslaved and starving? It doesn't look like it. To think about the state that's being described here for any of us, I think the hardest part is not just when you're incredibly rich, but actually when you're just an average good person. We could think of the way the famous and wealthy are enslaved, but not us. I mean, just an average guy, I'm a pretty good guy, do well at my job, I work hard, got a good family, people respect me, I keep my yard mowed. I don't look enslaved and starving. Jesus wants us to see ourselves in that younger brother as rebelling against the Father. He wants us to see that we are by nature in a state of slavery, poverty, shame, starving but we don't. 
You know why we don't? Because we compare ourselves. We live comparing ourselves to one another and we assume that's how God operates, right? And the good thing is when you compare yourself, there's always someone worse. One of my favorite questions to ask an early elementary school kid, first, second, third grader, is who's the worst kid in your class? They always have an answer. <laughs> they will quickly rattle off one, two, three names. Oh, there's always somebody. Who's the worst kid in your class? Oh, And we keep doing it in life. There's always somebody. Jesus says you need to see yourself as the worst person in class, as the one in the pigsty starving, even if your life is a well-manicured lawn. Why doesn't the son return when he's out of money or the famine hits? Because he has broken with the community and he knows if he returns, they will never let him live it down. In honor of the father, they will abuse him verbally. They will shame him constantly. They even had a ceremony for it in the first century called the Kazaza ceremony, where you took a pot and broke it in front of the community offender and said, you have broken relationship with us and you are as nothing to us anymore. Do not come back here. He would have expected if he returned, the broken pot ceremony would have happened and they would have shamed him forever. And on top of that, he knows that if he returns, he's going to be dependent on his father and his brother. He comes with nothing. He would wear the scarlet letter for the rest of his life. He cannot return. And clearly, he doesn't understand the nature of his father. But eventually, at the bottom of his pit, he turns. What does repentance look like? The second topic here, what does repentance look like? We see it beginning in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands, hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father. I will arise and I will go to my father. What happens? He comes to himself is the phrase. That basically means he has an aha moment. He wakes up from his dream. It's like Neo in the Matrix taking the red pill and finally being open to the true reality of things. To come to yourself is to come to your senses. And to come to your senses is the beginning of gospel repentance. To recognize that your life is not that well-manicured lawn. That it is pods and pigs. And his second phrase is, I will go, I will arise and I will go to my father. I will no longer live apart from my father. See, repentance is a turning to the father. It's giving up our independence project. Repentance at its root, and you may have heard this before if you've heard a sermon on it, is a change of direction, right? A couple of weeks ago, I had two boys up here representing God and humanity. And I said, God allows us to walk away from him, and he will let us walk away from him forever. But often the way we think about repentance is, I need to turn, and I need to walk back to God. 
But the biblical definition of repentance does not involve walking back to God. It's rather more like this. We're walking along and we don't realize that God's tapping us on the shoulder until we come to our senses and then we feel it and we turn and he hugs us. There's no walking back. There's no, let me meet you halfway, God. Let me show you what I can do. It's simply a turning, a turning from myself, a turning from my sinfulness, not a doubling down, a more discipline, a striving to be better. But unfortunately, the son doesn't yet get this because he doesn't just turn, he actually comes up with a plan. He's not just going to repent, he's going to repay the father. And this is where he gets his repentance a little bit wrong. We see this in the speech he's preparing, starting in verse 18. He says, I will arise and go to the father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now he gets this partially right. Repentance is recognizing that everything we do has been a sin against God, against the Father, and we are not worthy to be called his children. But his plan, his false plan comes in when he says, make me like one of your hired servants. Now if you've heard a sermon on this, you probably it's going to be redundant, but if not, what he's saying by make me like one of your hired servants is not actually as humble as it sounds. It is his repayment plan. He had squandered a third of the family wealth. He came back empty-handed. He's not coming back simply to have a relationship with the father. Instead, his plan involves, I'm going to still be in control of my status, my identity, and I'm going to earn my way back into the community. You see, what it's going to be like, Dad, is like this. I'll work for you. I'm not going to live under your house. I'll live in the village with the other hired men, and I'll come out and work on your field every day until I pay you back. I'll show you that I'm a good son. I'll pay back. I don't want any free ride. His plan is to work until he pays off the debt he has incurred, until he restores himself. We do the same thing too when we assume that God is out for retribution when we sin and that we need to pay him back. And so instead of just, I need to confess, it's, well, I also need to make it up to God. This is what I would call religious repentance. Religious repentance comes from a false view of God. It's a false view of the nature of God and of reality. It assumes on one level God owes me because I've been pretty good, but if I screw up, then I owe God. And so instead of just confessing our sin, we usually concoct a series of reforms and repentance in our life. Kind of like there was a movie, The Mission, from the 1980s where Robert De Niro plays a character who is a slave trader who accident, not accidentally, in anger kills his brother. He's full of so much guilt and remorse and shame. A missionary comes along and says, to, to De Niro's character, come on, I recognize how sad and sorrowful you are. God will forgive you. Now come and show it by the demonstration of penance. And what does he do? He spends a whole section of the whole film carrying a bundle behind him. It's a, it's a bag filled with all of his armor and weaponry. We have a picture of it, I think. Yeah, there it is. So it's filled with hundreds of pounds of all the evil he had done, representing all the evil. And he said, I'm going to drag this for 
hundreds of miles into the jungle. And then, then God will know that I'm sorry. Then I will have earned my way back for the evil I've done. And even if we don't have a a penance quite like this, we all come up with some way to try and even things out with God if we sin and we know it. I'm going to go to church more now. I'll start reading my Bible. I know I'll do more good. I'll give away money to charity. Ten Hail Marys and an Our Father, and then everything will be okay. Even those of you who come from very evangelical circles and don't like the idea of repentance and penance, my guess is at least at some point in your life, in the midst of confessing your sin to God, you've tried to work up emotion. I know I have, because then God will know I'm really serious. If I can bring tears down while I'm praying, then he'll know I mean it this time. I'll never do it again, God. We either have a series of penance, reforms, or we try to control the terms of our confession to God. In religious repentance, we're always trying to minimize the damage, minimize the pain to us, and the result is we'll end up admitting the least that we can possibly get away with admitting. We've seen this in presidents from Nixon to Clinton to every presidential candidate who's ever been out there. Admit as little as you can. It's the story of a dad with two little boys. They're upstairs playing, and he hears the younger one, who's a toddler, wailing and crying. The dad runs upstairs and says, what's wrong? The little boy, who's a toddler, doesn't really have his words yet, and he says, he hit me, crying and wailing and pointing to his older brother, who's about kindergarten age. The kindergartner says, no, I didn't. The father pins the two of them onto the bed. Not pins, but sit down, boys. Let's talk about this. Did you hit him? Nope. Yes, he did. The little boy's just wailing and crying. He hit me. He hit me. The older brother's defiant. No, no. Eventually, the father realizes that the older son is trying to hide what he's done, admitting the least that he can. So the father goes through a litany of possible offenses. Did you push him? No. Did you kick him? No. Did you hit him with a Nerf sword? No. Did you throw a ball at him? No. Did you happen to trip him? No. Did you push him over? Are you sure? No. Did you punch him? Yes. <laughs> well, didn't I just say, did you hit him? Yeah, but I didn't hit him. I punched him. Until he was cornered, the older boy was not going to admit a thing. Are we any different? Did you hit him? No. No, definitely not. You see, repentance is hard when you come from a religious perspective. A religious perspective doesn't mean you're religious. It means that you live in a merit-based, karmic-based worldview. And therefore, your identity and your self-worth is built on something, being a good parent, having a good career, being successful in whatever it is you want to be successful at, being moral and religious, being a nice citizen. And when you confess, you're forced to admit that you're not measuring up. And you end up losing a little bit of your self-worth and your identity. And even if you confess a little bit, the the next few weeks is you trying to get back your self-worth and identity. Being an even better parent, working even harder at work, doing even better at school. We're constantly trying to earn our way back to that status and level of feeling good. The gospel says... Because of sin, I owe God everything. 
and I cannot pay it back. But Jesus paid it all. The gospel says that I am saved by grace, that salvation is a gift, and no repayment plan is possible or even necessary. Gospel repentance looks very different than religious repentance. It involves a realization of the depth of my sin, that my natural bent is away from God. And as a result, I don't just repent of a sin or sins, I repent of my sin, my sinfulness. And as a result, gospel repentance increases our humility. In Psalm 51, towards the end, David says that God desires a broken spirit, a contrite heart, not sacrifices, not religiousness. He wants a heart that is broken and humble before him, not trying to maintain its pride or earn back its self-respect. Humble, completely humble before God. And gospel repentance involves total surrender. Surrender of my defensiveness, trying to diminish or limit the extent of my sin, trying to control the message, trying to control how I earn my way back. I'll be a hired hand, God. Watch, I'm going to do these good things. I'll, I'll earn my way back. Gospel repentance is falling upon the grace and mercy of God who has given us everything. The problem for the prodigal son the problem for the prodigal son is not the money that he has wasted. It's a broken relationship. The father does not want his property back from his son. He wants his son back. And the same is true with God. We see this as we read verses 20 to 23. And the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. This is a picture of the gospel. The son has sinned, he has turned, and the father embraces him with the love and mercy of God. Kenneth Bailey, who is a Middle Eastern scholar and New Testament scholar, writes this, with little, imagine, with little imagination, one can easily understand the intense fear the prodigal must have felt as he walked those last few miles to the village. The burning shame of the gauntlet of villagers and his father and his brother before him would be enough to terrify anyone. But when he arrives there is an unexpected, costly demonstration of his father's love. That love was always there, but he never saw it. Now that love becomes visible, and for the first time he is able to understand it. The father runs towards his son, and as you may have heard, Middle Eastern patriarchs never ran. This was a shameful, shameful thing before the entire village. He embraces his son, and he kisses him. You can almost imagine the son seeing his father running towards him, and the son's probably bracing to get hit. And instead, he gets embraced and kissed. What the father does is shocking. His reputation is sullied. 
The villagers think, how shameful that a man like that would go run to this horrible son of his. And he doesn't just stop there. He gives him a robe covering over his tattered nakedness and a ring and shoes. And what are these? The robe means he's been re-inherited. A robe functioned almost like a legal document in that ancient world. Joseph, with his amazing technicolor dream coat, the reason the brothers hated him is because he, even though he was not the oldest son, had the greatest share of the inheritance. David receives the robe of Jonathan in 1 Samuel, who should have been king. That basically meant, when I give you my robe, David, you're really the rightful king. The father re-robes the son, re-inherits him, He gives him the ring, the signet ring, meaning you can do the business of the family. And he puts shoes on his feet, meaning you are a son, not a servant, not a hired person, not a slave. You're my son. He covers the son's nakedness and shame. He re-inherits him and welcomes him as a son. And then he goes on top of that by killing the fattened calf, which basically meant he brings the entire village to celebrate his son. He restores his son socially establishing him in a place of honor in the community so he will not wear that scarlet letter again. And think about this. Think about how the father's love enables the son's repentance, not the other way around. Even before the son gets a word out, the father is running to embrace him. The dad does not know if the son is coming back to demand more money or to gloat. It doesn't matter. The fact that he is on the road, the father runs and hugs him. The son had publicly shamed his father and stolen his wealth. The father covers the son's shame, restores him at great cost to himself. It's a picture of the cross. Jesus hangs in crucifixion naked, literally. The most shameful death in the ancient world. Jesus is humiliated and hanging in shame, bearing our shame and guilt, stripped of his clothing so we might wear his robes. And we who put our faith in Christ wear the robes of his righteousness. When God looks at us, he sees the robe of Jesus, children of God. Repentance. Repentance as seen in this picture of the prodigal son is to accept being found. The son makes a false statement early on in his turnaround when he says, I will arise and go to my father. Do you know what I will arise is? It's actually literally, I will resurrect myself. It's the same word as resurrection. The son's like, I realize I'm in a bad place. I'm going to resurrect myself. But he can do nothing of that. Instead, because the father embraces him, re-robes him, re-inherits him, restores him to the community, and washes over his sin with his loving embrace, The son is made alive again in a way that he could not have done for himself. The father then says at the very end, my son was dead, but is alive again. He was lost, but is found. It's the father's embrace that finds the son. It's the father's love that restores the son to true life. And that's at its root what repentance is. Repentance is admitting you need resurrection, admitting that you need to be found. 
And this is hard for us. We want to think that we are not really that lost. Not too far from heaven, you know. We're not really spiritually dead, are we? I mean, maybe a little spiritually out of shape. Pudgy and easily winded in the spiritual sense, so to speak. But not dead. But repentance, gospel repentance, is a mindset, a self-understanding, a view of reality, an approach to life, a continual awareness that I need the Father's embrace. I am dead in my sin, I am spiritually lost on my own, and I need to be found. Let's pray. God, in our guilt and shame, we try to pick ourselves up, but we really need to just fall on your mercy. In repentance, we try to rework the plan, limit our offenses, hide what we've really done. But when we come to that place of recognizing that we are more sinful than we're willing to admit, it's when we come to see the loving embrace of God who loves us more than we can dare to imagine. And so in the little things and the big things, and in the state of who we are, we fall upon your mercy, knowing that you are the God who embraces and restores and forgives. You are the one who gives us life this day. In Jesus' name, amen.